Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we lift up your name. You are indeed the living God. You're the God who speaks, and you're the God who desires to relate to us. And so, Lord, as we come, may we come with ears to hear and hearts willing to be transformed by your Holy Spirit. And so, speak and let us hear your voice and see your face. In Jesus' name, amen. So, I planned all along this morning to kind of start with something that's a little bit interactive, which actually works better with a smaller crowd. So let me ask you this. What does your vision of a utopian society look like? What does your vision of a utopian society look like? What is it? What does it look like? What does it feel like? Throw out anything that you think a utopian, your vision of a utopian society has. No payment for parking, I feel you. Yes, especially in Iowa City. And they'll get you. What else? Living in community. Living in community. Being connected to one another. Good. What else? There could be a billion things you can say. Just throw it out there. Keep going. No more dying? Is that what I heard? No more pain? That would be nice. Yeah. Yeah. Affordable health care. Yeah. No healthcare needed. <laughs> but if we need it, then affordable, yes. <laughs> no discord, yeah? Lions don't eat lambs. Say that again? Lions don't eat lambs? Are you a vegetarian? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no car repairs. No car repair. <laughs> what else? What would your vision of a utopian society look like? Feel like? Yeah, Fred. Everyone would know God. Okay. Yeah. Anything else? I'm sure there's a billion other things that we could say. But as we think about even whatever our vision of a utopian society looks like, then whatever those things are, that means it is required of us as well. Because us as individuals, we make up the society. So whatever our vision of utopia is, it is what is required of us as well. And as we think about that, and we come to God's law, we see that God's law really paints a picture of a utopian society. And often we um, chafe at God requiring things of us. But what he requires of us is also, again, a picture of who he is, but also the life that he wants for us. And today we're looking at the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. And we've been looking at the series uh, in light of the biblical narrative of creation, fall, redemption, consummation. And I've been making this point that every commandment reflects a desire that God has given us. And I believe that um, this commandment shows that God has given us a desire for life. Life in the broadest sense possible. So when we talk about what is a utopian society, we are saying this is the life that we long for, that we desire in this world. And so let's take a look at what Jesus says about this particular commandment. 
And we've looked, again, in the series through what is a narrow meaning of the commandment, what is the broader meaning. And Jesus is always taking us in the direction of the broader meaning of the commandment. This commandment particularly, we look at the narrow meaning, you shall not murder. This one's an easy one to check off. I'm good, God. Haven't murdered anyone this week. But here's what Jesus says, right? As he sets up talking about the sixth commandment, he says this in Matthew 5, verse 17. It says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or, or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, he's saying this because he's getting a lot of criticism from the Jewish leaders that he's being too loosey-goosey, that he's not following the laws as the Jewish people have for so many years. He's trying to be very clear. I'm not coming to abolish anything, coming to fulfill them. And then he says in verse 20, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, you have to, again, understand the the Pharisees. Now, as Christians who've been in the church for a while, we think of the Pharisees as the bad guys. The Pharisees are not the bad guys in the Jewish context. They're the good guys. They're the goodest guys. They're the holiest of guys. They're the holiest, goodest people you could think of. Like, so whoever that is in your life, who is the holiest person you could think of? Like this, Jesus is saying, you got to be holier than the holiest person you can think of. And in this, again, this context, it was the Pharisees. The Jewish people thought the Pharisees were the holiest people. And Jesus is saying, you need to be even holier. He's raising the bar on what God's law is about. Now, we do understand that when Jesus came, he abolished the ceremonial laws for the Jewish people. the, the, The sacrifices were done away with, if you believe in the Messiah. And yet, we still believe the moral law, as we see in the commandments, are, are to continue to be fulfilled. And we still live in a broken world, did back then, we still do now. We understand that we are waiting in this already not yet period of, of God to come back and to eradicate all evil from this world. And so we still wait for this peaceful reign of God. We wait for this consummation, right? We're in this redemption period. God is redeeming things, and yet we wait for the consummation. We're waiting for that utopian society that God is bringing that in. We're not, I say this a lot, we're not going to be like playing harps, floating around ethereal objects, worshiping God every day. Like the vision of God in Scripture, He's bringing in utopian society. And we pray that every week here, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're praying for God to come down. We're praying for God to create the utopian society. Now, when we look at this commandment, you shall not murder, we could go in so many directions. It's a bit overwhelming. If you think about it just on the sense of ethics, we could, we could be talking about uh, just war versus pacifism. We could be talking about pro-life versus pro-choice. We could be talking about stem cell research. We could talk about euthanasia. We could talk about capital punishment. We could, we could talk about health and safety. We could talk about the environment. We could talk about all of these things. And so even when we think of a broad application of the Sixth Commandment only with regards to physical life, we're already looking at a very broad swath of things. But I think for today, given we're doing a, you know, we could, honestly, we could do a series called Life and Death, and we could cover so many of these topics. But for today, we're, we're doing a series, I mean, this, we're doing a series on the Ten Commandments, and given limited time, I wanted to hone in on what would be most personal, personal for as many people as possible, and, and go in the direction in which Jesus goes in when he talks about this commandment. 
So Jesus says about this commandment in verse 21 uh, in Matthew 5, he says this. This is his take on um, you shall not murder. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. I mean, it's pretty striking already, right? Wow, this is what it means to follow this commandment, Jesus? Now, this term raka is an Aramaic term of contempt. And Jesus is, is trying to say that even when we have contempt towards others, when we say words of contempt to others, that we are already breaking this commandment of you shall not murder. And it is interesting in our times, particularly today, where ironically it is much easier to rage against injustices than to deal with the sinful anger in our own hearts. And it is tragic to me that we have so misunderstood God and his commandments that we are more concerned as Christians about not saying this cuss word, which I won't say, beep, or this cuss word, beep, rather than looking at how at the heart level there's contempt in our hearts and contempt even in the words that we say to others. That you could say a very PG thing, you idiot! You're like, okay, that's so tame. But you could say it with such contempt that it grieves God's heart much more than if you, you know, said the worst cuss word you could think of out of frustration. So it's not about PG or R-rated. That's just cultural ideas of words. It's what is it at the heart level? And Jesus is saying, on the heart level, it's about our contempt for people and whether we're willing to recognize that and to deal with that. Verse 22, we already heard it says, but if anyone tell you that, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. You know, different personalities struggle differently. Some know they have a temper, know they struggle with anger. And so when you read these words, it's like, oh, Lord Jesus, I know I struggle with anger. But really, if you live in this world, (laughs) you will have anger. It's just like logical from the Bible because it's broken. There's sin. People are going to sin against you. No one is exempt from being sinned against. And if that's true, then often the response is anger. Right? And so the question is, anger is not wrong in and of itself, but there is sinful anger and there's righteous anger. And we'd like to think our anger is always righteous. Right? As we fight against injustices. But sometimes our anger is just sinful and Jesus is trying to address address our sinful anger. I'm not someone with a temper, really, generally speaking. But what God has been doing in peeling back the layers of sin is to show me my anger is much more subtle. And I might think of myself as a quite a peaceable person, but I too am human. 
and there's anger underneath things that come out in ways that, again, is not just me flying off the handle at people, but it's there. And how will I deal with it as I see it come up? But Jesus goes on. Verse 23 says, Therefore, if you are offering your gift... Sometimes we separate these things. We look at this verse about, you know, calling you fool, raka, and then we forget that Jesus follows with these particular examples. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them and then come and offer your gift. And then a different example. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is at, uh, who's taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. So we see these two examples. Jesus talked about, you know, you shall not murder. At the heart of murder is anger, sinful anger. And then he comes to these specific examples. One, of a fellow believer and a worshiper. This example of bringing your gift to the altar. Are you right with your fellow believer? And then another example of a person and their enemy who are going to court because you're getting sued. Now, it's interesting to note that these two examples are not about you being angry at someone else. It's about someone being angry at you and there being a lack of peace. It would seem most obvious for Jesus to go to the example of how you are angry at someone else. But this ang- the examples that Jesus goes to is about how someone is angry at you. And so when we look at Jesus' definition of murder here, it's very difficult. Okay, obviously killing someone is murder. Having sinful anger towards someone is also breaking this commandment. Expressing contempt at someone is breaking this commandment. Being unwilling to reconcile with a fellow Christian you have hurt or angered is also breaking this commandment. Not settling quickly with those we may have offended, also breaking this commandment. You see how Jesus, in raising the bar of what holiness is. Now let's ask this question, right? Because... Again, I think probably all of you are comfortable saying, I have not killed anyone this week or in my life. But what is life, right? So first, the physical level. Again, I think you're all good on the physical level. But even from what Jesus has said so far, there's an emotional level. Anger being the root of murder. There's a relational level. Anger keeps us from reconciliation. There's a spiritual level. Our lack of offering forgiveness to others affects our worship of God. There's an eternal level that he points to. Our misunderstanding of the commandments can have eternal consequences. So there's these really five aspects of life we can look at. Physical, emotional, relational, spiritual, eternal. It's interesting, there was a controversial story this week. Um, Liam Neeson... (laughs) I think, it's, I think Liam Neeson is a great actor, and I think it's funny that he's become like, since Taken, he's become like the old guy who kicks, I'm trying to think of a word that I can say at church, kicks, you know, has a particular set of skills, right? But he was having an, an honest conversation with a journalist, and he was admitting this 
a, he's, he's, he's doing another revenge-themed movie. And so he's talking about tapping into this sense of revenge in him as an actor. And he's relating a story from when he was younger. And he talked about um, a friend who was abused. And he was so angry for her that he says this, my immediate reaction was, I asked, did, did she know who it was? And she said, no. What color were they? She said, it was a black person. And then he says this, I went up and down areas with a kosh, which apparently is a metal or, a metal or rubber weapon, a kosh, hoping that I'd be approached by somebody. I'm ashamed to say that, and I did it for maybe a week, hoping some black person, except he didn't say person, would come out of a pub and have a go at me about something, you know, so that I could kill him. So, I mean, all the controversy is like, is it okay for him to even say this? Is this like, I know he's saying it because he's ashamed of it, but he was trying to say, like, he gets this feeling of wanting revenge. But we see even in just this, you know, it doesn't matter so much what we think of it, we see it is just an illustration that physical murder is just one layer. There's so many more layers. Even in the story of Liam Neeson, we see there's an emotional level, there's a relational level, but there is racism that's involved in his attitudes, at least at the time of the story, right? And so we see that Life is so much more than just the physical life. And therefore, this commandment is so much more than just about the physical life. D.A. Carson, who's a great theologian, any commentary written by him is good. He says this, the root of murder is anger, and anger is murderous in principle. And that's why Jesus wants us to pay such particular attention to whatever anger that we struggle with. Again, Jesus is not saying that the narrow meaning of murder is incorrect. Of course, taking someone's life is wrong. But he's saying that physical murder is just the tip of the iceberg. And that there's so much more to this commandment. And Jesus is pointing us to the fulfillment of this particular commandment of what it means to obey this commandment. You know, we're a Presbyterian church and we use the Westminster Shorter Catechism as a way of learning what theology that the Bible teaches. And as I've referenced before, that the catechisms um, teach about the commandments. And so question 136 for the larger catechism says this, what are the sins forbidden in the sixth commandment? Brace yourselves if you have not heard this. The sins forbidden in the sixth commandment are all taking away the life of ourselves or of others, except in case of public justice, lawful war, or necessary defense, the neglecting or withdrawing the lawful and necessary means of preservation of life, sinful anger, hatred, envy, desire of revenge, all excessive passions, distracting cares, immoderate use of meat, drink, labor, and recreations, provoking words, oppression, quarreling, striking, wounding, and whatsoever else tends to the destruction of the life of any. Wow. <laughs> That's heavy. If this is correct, which I believe it is, we've all broken this commandment. 
we might have entered into thinking our understanding of this commandment. I'm good on the sixth commandment. But when we look at this definition, we all realize in some way or the other, we've done this. But let me say something positive about it. This is why I love our Reformed tradition because I really believe it helps us engage in the contemporary culture today. This one catechism teaches us that I can simultaneously fight for the life of the unborn child and at the same time fight for justice for the African American. It says to me that I can fight for the rights of religious freedom and at the same time fight for the LGBT community not to be discriminated against. That I can fight against life taking on a societal level and at the same time fight against life-taking attitudes on the heart level, my heart level. Not just raging against the system that's so wrong, but dealing with my heart where it begins. So what does your utopian society look like? It may seem like a pie-in-the-sky question, but it is a question that, honestly, we are constantly dealing with every day of our life because we are created with a desire for life and we can't escape that desire. We're always fighting for life in some way, whether our life in the fullest for ourselves or life for others. And again, a good example in the news recently, New York Congresswoman Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez came out with the Green New Deal and it aggressively seeks to deal with climate change issues within 10 years with strong government intervention in the areas of electricity, transportation, agriculture, economic security, and oppressions of all kinds. It doesn't matter to me whether you're Republican, Libertarian, or Democratic. What, what I'm trying to say is this Green New Deal is a utopian vision for life. It is a answer that someone is putting forth about how our world needs to change, how America needs to change. And it's really not as simple as climate change. I mean, those five goals, these five areas that we're dealing with is a, involves a lot of things, a lot of people. It's not just about the environment. It's a vision for utopian society. Let me give a definition of this utopian society. A utopian society is one where everyone willingly does everything they can to promote life. A utopian society is one where everyone willingly does everything they can to promote life. One of our core values as a church is the word flourishing. Flourishing. That's what we hope to do. Flourishing in every sense. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it in heaven. Physical flourishing, emotional flourishing, relational flourishing, spiritual flourishing through faith in Jesus Christ and eternal flourishing. And the word willingly is a really important word here, right? Because the difference, the major difference between any human political utopia versus God's utopia is that a human political utopia can only hope that someone or some party has enough power to enact their utopian vision. So someone is going to be made to go along with the utopian vision, whether they like it or not. But God has the power to change 
hearts. Because God has the power to transform hearts, the utopian vision is always a willing participation in the flourishing of all people. To promote life through everything that we can. God's love changes hearts. God's truth sets people free. But we recognize again as Christians that it must be through faith in Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean I can't work alongside with someone I don't agree with to bring common good and flourishing to my city. But I still believe ultimately that there must be a spiritual flourishing through faith in Christ for it to have eternal significance. God is in the business of changing hearts. And when we look at Jesus pointing us to the broadest application of the sixth commandment, we can't help, if we're being honest with ourselves, to be left a little bit heavy. Like, Lord, to do everything that I can to promote life for myself and for the people around me, that's just too much. I can't do that. And so again and again, we're pointed to Jesus. And that's what the commandments are supposed to do in a broken world for us. They're supposed to point us to Jesus, our need for Jesus. And when we turn to Jesus, what we see is this. Is that again, and we say this in every commandment, He is the fulfillment of each and every commandment. He is the fulfillment for our desire for life. And He speaks directly to it. He says that He is the offer of life. Peter says then in Acts 3, 14-15, You handed him, Jesus, over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. You see the great irony in the gospel message? The irony of the gospel is that the Lord and author of life submitted himself to death, in the hands of killers who released a murderer for an innocent so that we, the spiritually dead, may be brought back to life. So much contrast and irony of life and death and murder and giving life in the gospel. And Jesus says in John six fifty one that he is the bread of life. He says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. My wife is gluten-free. Maybe this analogy imagery is lost on our gluten-free world now. Bread is evil. <laughs> Jesus is saying, He is the staple food for our souls. We need Him. We must partake of Him every day, several times a day, in order to live. That's what bread's supposed to be, right? This necessity, this staple of life. And she's saying, He is the staple of life. He is the one who brings life. And Jesus says that he is the resurrection and the life. In John 11, verse 25 to 26, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? My friends, do you believe this? 
I know you do, but do you believe this? That Jesus is your resurrection and your life. Ultimately, nothing else is. It is through faith in Jesus that we are spiritually brought to life to have hope for eternal life, given hope for the the fullness of life, physical, emotional, relational, spiritual, eternal fullness of life through Jesus. And it is out of this gratitude we have towards God who is our resurrection and our life that we can then be empowered to go out and seek the promotion of life, the flourishing of life for everyone around us, including ourselves. That we can seek the flourishing of our neighbor physically, emotionally, relationally, spiritually, eternally. The life that God calls us to in ourselves and in others really is a grand vision. A grand vision that we cannot accomplish in our own human efforts. Only God can. And so, in that sense, we must fly to Jesus and His sacrifice. We must fly to Jesus and embrace His love and forgiveness. We must embrace the righteousness He has given to us by faith in Him. And we must embrace the hope of God's utopia, not human utopia. Because it is through God's way that we can love in the way that he calls us to. That we can love in a way where we are empowered to love, not out of guilt, not out of anger. You know that, right? Some people are driven by anger in order to fight against injustice, which is a great irony, again, in Jesus' words here. And not out of self-righteousness, but to seek God's utopia out of love. To love because He first loved us. Not to be driven by anything else other than our love for God, our gratitude for God. And so I leave you with these questions to think about for yourselves. In the physical realm, what can you do to promote physical health for yourself and provide for the physical well-being of others, your neighbors. On the emotional level, what can you do to improve your emotional well-being and encourage others emotionally? Relational level, what relationships do you need to seek out for yourself? What relationship do you need to offer others? What reconciliation do you need to seek? On the spiritual level, how can you encourage your own relationship with God? How can you encourage others to faith in Christ in their spiritual lives? And lastly, on the eternal level, how can you live more with a sense of eternal and how to help others towards the hope of that eternal life through Jesus? Let's pray.